You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everybody. It is great to have my three colleagues with me today on the Walker webcast to talk about where the markets are and what we are seeing at WND. This is the first time Ivy has joined me twice before on the Walker webcast, but I think we're doing number 75, something like that today. And up until now, the focus has always been outside of WD. I think a lot of our competitor firms have done webcasts where they brought in their own professionals and seem to have been, if you will, talking their own book. And so Walker and Dunlop has, on the Walker webcast, consistently looked outside, if you will, from our team to bring in perspectives from others. But last week, I was on a call with a client. And I had Chris Mickelson, who's joining me today, and Aaron Appel, who's joining me today, on that call. Typically in a client call, I speak sometime within the first couple of minutes of the call, and then we'll consistently talk throughout the call. And on this call, I went 48 minutes without having to open up my mouth because Chris and Aaron were so engaging on what both of them are seeing in the markets. And so thinking back on that, I thought it would be great this week to have Aaron and Chris and Ivy talk about what the three of them are seeing in the markets from the financing perspective with Aaron, from the investment sales perspective with Chris, and from the overall market perspective with Ivy. The three of them really don't need a lot of introduction, but I will say Ivy Zellman runs Zellman Associates, now part of Walker & Dunlop. We are thrilled to have Ivy and her team at Walker & Dunlop, and their research is consistently viewed as the very best on the housing market, both single family, built for rent, single family rental, as well as multifamily. Chris Mickelson runs Walker and Dunlop's investment sales business, has done an incredible job over the last five years of scaling that business into truly the very best in multifamily investment sales platform in the country. And Aaron Appel runs our New York financing group. Aaron and his team have done huge financings on all asset classes, both in the New York areas as well as across the country. And we will get into today what Aaron and his team are seeing, not only in the multifamily asset class, but in office, retail, industrial, and other commercial asset classes. So with that, I want to start by first welcoming my three colleagues. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I want to start with some questions that actually Chris put around to all of us yesterday and get you to just do a really quick answer on that. So here we go. Ivy, I'm going to start with you. It's three questions, so I can repeat them if I've gone too quickly or one answer bleeds into the next. But first, what if anything is mispriced today? Two, if you had one word to describe your feelings about the market in 2022, what would it be? And three, if you had $100 million to invest today, where would you put it? So on the first question, anything mispriced today, I think there are a lot of deals being mispriced in the bill for rent uh, segment of the market, given robust land inflation and values that I do think will come under pressure. So it's sort of a blanket answer. Number two, 22 is a year of moderation. 
And number three, thinking about where to invest $100 million, I'm very bullish on any way to take advantage of the aging U.S. stock. So the existing stock that is today approaching 50 years old, depending on what city you're in, but I'd be interested in in the flip and fix business where you can actually provide an upgrade to the current stock. And that's really more focused in the Northeast and the Midwest where the stock is the oldest. Chris, overpriced. 2022 and a million bucks. So I put that question out to all of our investment sales team. And the best answer that I got back was from our team in Austin, Texas, that was convinced that the most overpriced thing in the market is uh, season tickets to University of Texas football. So <laughs> outside of UT football, I think everything is very efficiently priced. I do get a little bit nervous and it's almost an extension of kind of what Ivy's bullish about get a little bit nervous of this deep value add product trading at cap rates inside of kind of core and core plus opportunities where you're going in and you're rehabbing a 35, 40 year old asset and just thinking about just asset age at the residual, that gives me a little bit of pause. The word that I would just use for to describe 2022, we continue to be very bullish on fundamentals and liquidity. So I think we're going to have another busy, busy year next year on the transaction side. If I had $100 million, I would probably put it into de-risk age-targeted housing on the BFR and conventional space, and I would do as much ground-up development and low density with low-density product as possible. You saying the market is efficiently priced. Boy, do you ever sound like a broker. All right. I was also going to say like, you know, that you learned a lesson on that call last week to not give me an appell the microphone. No, I'm very much looking forward to giving both you and Appel the microphone so you can give us your perspectives. I just love the efficiently priced rather than overpriced. Aaron, to you, what's overpriced or out of whack 2022? And where'd you put a hundred million bucks? Certainly, I would say multifamily and industrial are, I don't know if I would call them overpriced, but the growth expectations that in rents that, that investors are looking to or need to hit to hit their targeted returns are astronomical relative to historical patterns up until about 18 months ago. So I would certainly say that the bulk of the liquidity in the market continues to to move into those asset classes. I would say right now, overpriced probably, I would say would be lower quality, lower end multifamily would be my, my uh, if I had a guess where things were most overpriced because you're seeing plays there and, and cap rates on those assets trading at similar rates to where class A assets are trading, you know, with the expectation and intention that you're going to continue to be able to ramp up rents and grow them. We've seen growth projections in certain markets in those asset classes as high as 15% year over year for the first couple of years. And um, I think that population that inhabits that, you know, that asset class, you know, there's a limit to what you can charge those people. That's a problematic uh, uh, spot in the marketplace. You know, on the industrial side, everything's extremely expensive. Rents continue to move up. The, the urban infill industrial market's been dominated by Amazon. Their desire to lease everything new in urban infill locations and, and to dominate the leasing markets has driven rents you know, up. We've seen in New York 25% increases over the last two years, roughly. Rents were called $29, $30 a foot for new space. It's, it's close to 40 now. So I think that as a developer or investor in that space, if you're looking to target those rents, it's market controlled by one tenant right now. There are ancillary tenants in the market, but that's a pretty scary thought in our eyes. So 2022? 2022, best place to invest. 
No, just one word to describe what you think you expect for 2022. More of the same. Okay. And uh, where would you put a hundred million bucks today? Bitcoin. All right. We'll loop back to that in a minute. So Chris, Aaron jumped right in on yield and yield expectations, particularly as it relates to suburban multi. Talk for a moment about, if you will, the the equity yields that people are expecting and proforming and the, if you will, the transition of the market from large asset managers who had opportunity funds looking for 20% IRRs to now the non-traded REITs looking for a 5% yield. I think when I made the comment about the market is efficiently priced, it certainly seems uh, expensive to folks that have been investing on a consistent basis over the course of the last 15 years. But the reality is we are matching up buyers with private and institutional capital that have really repriced their total return expectations across the board. And so Aaron is right. There is, we're seeing an operational environment throughout the summer and fall of 2021 that might be unlike any operational environment we ever see in the multifamily space with you know, consistent double-digit rent growth really across certainly across the Sun Belt, but in, in large part across all the markets across the country. So there's that first kind of mark to market that buyers have to get their arms around. But the reality is, is with the leverage that's in the market today, most of these groups are solving for upper single digit levered IRRs at very responsible leverage levels with that near-term growth assumption that is bolstered by what's actually happening on the ground. And then a broader acknowledgement that we're going to be in a lower interest rate environment that's going to endure for a longer period of time. And so that's informed the exit cap rate assumptions that they're putting into their model as well. And so your comment, Willie, about these largest, the larger asset managers that have historically been very active in these closed-end opportunistic vehicles that are targeting 20 plus percent returns, to a T, almost all those groups have now recalibrated some of them are kind of democratizing the ownership of these institutional quality assets through non-traded REITs. Some of them are raising levered core plus funds. Their return expectations have dramatically shifted to where now, if you can look through to a stabilized kind of levered five to five and a half percent yield, that math works. And I think the underpinnings of the operational story are so positive for multi. That's why we're continuing to see the liquidity come to our space as that dollar gets invested to real estate and more of that dollar continues to come to multifamily and industrial. So Ivy, Chris just said that rent growth in the multi-space this summer has been unprecedented. And we've seen it not only just on market surveys, but we've also seen it in the rent growth that the public multifamily operators got in Q3 and reported on. As you look at the single family market, not only on fire, it's, I mean, there's an article last week in the Wall Street Journal about people having to, it feels very much like 2007, to be honest with you, as far as people putting up deposits on homes they've never seen before, the housing market driving so hard. Does it surprise you that the multifamily fundamentals are as strong as they are right now? Frankly, it has surprised us to see new move in rent growth approaching 20%. You know, we just had New York overall up 18%, albeit off of 19, it's only up slightly. So coming from a plunging level, but really across the US, whether it be urban core with a few exceptions like San Francisco and LA, I think you've got 
very, very, I think, shocking, frankly, levels of inflation. But I do think that you're getting the unwind of all the young people that left their parents, went home via COVID, and they're now coming back into cities. And there is really not as much of the supply that's in backlog is really been delivered. So we're still looking at an environment where supply is relatively stable. So you don't have the pressure yet. So I think there's a lot of supply coming and we could see it in the backlog that has been up until recently, predominantly urban core, but that shifted in 17 when it started moving to suburbia. And now because of where all the developers are, are focused predominantly in suburbia, we're seeing that development backlog extending into suburbia as you don't have the pipeline of supply yet to really challenge the rents that we currently are seeing. But yes, we have been surprised by the overall inflation. But keep in mind, you also have a lot of physical occupancy that's taking away from or inflating the overall level of occupancy that today you're not getting an economic return on. So when we start to see the eviction moratoriums now being lifted and you'll have free up capacity, that might start to impact the level of rent inflation we're getting because that has been a benefit to the rent inflation. And so your view as it relates to inflation and whether we're now, we're, we're clearly seeing the picture that you just played out in Q2 and Q3 of 2021 as it relates to not enough supply, rents are going up, uh, but yet you're saying that there is, if you will, supply that's going to come online that should alleviate that. Take that view out broader to the economy. Do you believe that inflation abates here and that there is new supply chains free up and that we get some relief? Or is your view that we continue to see this hyperinflation that we've seen in Q2 and Q3 of 2021? There's no reason why the inflation should abate right now, given the fact that the supply is not yet being delivered and the supply bottlenecks that we've seen, whatever port containers sitting ocean freight out in L.A., all of that has been the best friend of the industry because you just can't deliver the product. So it's the best regulator to mitigate oversupplying a market. So net right now, inflation should continue with the eviction moratoriums being lifted. We've talked to whether it be public reads or industry contacts, your clients, my, my industry contacts that are saying, we do believe that when we have to evict these people, we will not have as much pricing power. So they're even in class B and even a modest amount in class A, predominantly C and B, but you're going to see freed up occupancy that will reduce the level, at least the today's sustainable level, or is today's level sustainable with the occupancy now being released? I think you'll see some maybe moderation of it, but still until the supply gets delivered. I mean, all you have to do is look in the backlog of the number of multifamily units that are currently in backlog, but have yet to be completed. And it's at multi-decade highs. So Aaron, we're going to kind of toggle back and forth between multi and other asset classes. But just for a moment, as, as Chris and Ivy are talking about the tightness in the multi-market, incredible rent growth, and also cap rates compressing dramatically and single family versus multifamily, um, a lot of people are also looking for opportunity in other asset classes. And clearly in 2020, we saw the asset classes of retail and office and hospitality all suffer. Has capital started to move back into those asset classes? And what are you and your team seeing as it relates to opportunities there? Yeah, I think capital has moved back into them. Those asset classes have suffered more so than, than any other asset class. While industrial multifamily really thrived and for sale housing thrived through the middle of COVID today, you've had significant distress in retail, certain hospitality assets, urban infill hospitality, not resort hospitality, and then uh, to a certain extent, office 
those are where the distressed plays are taking place now. That's where a lot of the credit sales are taking place in the marketplace to the extent that there are credit sales. And that's where a lot of the rescue capital is going and turnaround plays are. But, you know, I think that the capital is available on a limited basis, and I think it's available for the best quality stuff. So I know you're working on a lot of different recaps. Are you the, the distress that's in the market? You just said there's capital for it. So you're not seeing any foreclosures. What you're seeing is someone who had a project that was underway and you're coming in with fresh capital to reequify it and then develop on the plan that was previously in place. Or are you seeing actual lenders foreclosing on stuff and people stepping in and taking it? We're seeing very limited foreclosures. It's been mostly recaps, new capital coming in. There's just so much liquidity in the market. If there's any possibility that there's upside in the deal, the existing sponsor has still some control over the destiny of the asset. Then to recap it, get a hope note. We're seeing very, very little foreclosures. We've done some UCC sales. I mean, they're taking place. They're certainly much more rampant foreclosures and UCC sales than they were 24 months ago, but we're not seeing the, the floodgates by any stretch of the imagination. And certainly on the quality end of the assets, there's capital chasing those transactions. So deals are getting cut before foreclosure takes place. And from an interest rate standpoint, if multi is being lent on, obviously it depends on asset, depends on leverage level, but let's just swag it and say multi coupon rates right now are somewhere between sort of 310, 350, and with the 10 year moving up, some of the deals that we're right now putting on might be a little bit north of 350, but swag it in the mid threes. On hospitality, retail, on those asset classes that were so out of favor a year ago, where are you seeing pricing coming as it relates to all in coupon rates? Look, it depends on the nature. If it's a seasoned operating hotel that's had a lot of success, and we're doing some resort-style hotels in, in Florida now where we've seen EBITDA double since 19 or come close to it, and we're going to finance off that new cash flow. Credit spreads on that stuff have gone from, you know, call it LIBOR plus 600. We're seeing spreads, you know, sub 400 over LIBOR right now in some of those assets. We've seen bids on urban infill hotel that are starting to ramp back up that are what I would deem to be, you know, relatively new or high, higher quality assets. That cost of funds is in the mid fours right now over LIBOR, upper fours over LIBOR. That didn't have a bid 12 months ago. There was no liquidity. And if there was, it was high single digit money. So we've seen that. I think retail's priced a little bit tighter than that. And people are still selective based on what the retail is, but it's a bit inside hospitality. Office is still garnered for blue chip class A, high quality office. Rates are as inexpensive as they've ever been. We've seen, you know, the issue being on Certainly in the public markets, on the on the balance sheet side with uh, insurance companies and commercial banks, they have exposure issues in a lot of the urban infill markets on office. They are selectively lending and certainly cherry-picking assets that they want to lend into. Does the prevalence of debt funds in the market, Aaron, concern you at all today? It feels a little bit like the debt funds are CMBS 3.0 in the sense that the CMBS market really drove the liquidity in the market back in the 2006-2007 era. And we all know how that chapter ended, if you will. Do you see debt funds acting in a similar way today? Or is there something fundamentally different that gives you more confidence that they aren't as transient capital as CMBS was pre-GFC? Talking to a friend this morning at a credit that runs a credit business, and we were just talking about how so much of the talent that that used to be in, in other places in lending sphere really now is, is on the credit side at credit funds you know, throughout the market. These groups are creative. They can move quickly. They have numerous different ways to manufacture leverage for themselves. 
And uh, we've done deals with credit funds where they've given us 100% of cost financing. We've done deals with credit funds where we've bifurcated fees, sold sold fee positions, had them finance 100% of a leasehold position because the the credit yield was so attractive. But you know, based on creating some arbitrage in the market. But the big difference between what you're referencing and where we are today with those groups is all those groups have their own proprietary capital. They're all, you know, big boys. They are holding the bottoms of all these transactions themselves. They are not selling off the bottoms of the loans that they write. So they are holding, you know, substantial risk positions. If one writes a $200 million loan, you know, they're probably holding the bottom $60 million on their balance sheet. And that's where they're manufacturing their yield. And then they're leveraging the, the first 140 million with, with cheap proceeds. So that's a huge difference in the CMBS marketplace. Everything is distributed. Nobody's holding risk that's originating credit and it's getting moved around the marketplace to different various buyers of, of paper that are looking to purchase for yield, not for ownership. These groups all know how to own and operate real estate. They understand risk and um, you know they're taking you know substantial risk, but they're taking it with their own capital you know, it's a big, big difference. I have to say, I hear you say that. I concur with many of the things that you said. And at the same time, I do recall saying myself and completely wrong in hindsight that back in 2007, the CMBS market was going to survive whatever came along because it was a liquid market with full transparency. And if somebody didn't like a loan, they could go out and trade it in the market and somebody else would step in and buy it. And how wrong I was on that view. Hey, Chris, as it relates to cap rates, Peter Linneman back in April of 2020, which was a very different time than today, but he was looking forward and basically said, throughout this pandemic, you're going to have to basically forget about cap rates. It feels from some of the prices that your clients are paying for assets that they have completely forgotten about cap rates or why cap rates matter or how to compute a cap rate. Give me your perspective on why this market is sort of forgetting about cap rates and going in basically saying it's not the cap rate, it's the growth. I remember very clearly listening to Lenneman. That was, I think, the first time we had him on, and it was April of 20, and he made that comment that we're going to go through a period of time where cap rates are really going to get thrown out the window and they're going to be somewhat irrelevant. It was a prescient comment for the probably the first nine months that followed that webcast. Uh, I think the thing that Peter probably didn't see, and I'm not sure any of us saw, was the operational environment that we're in that I referenced earlier and the rent growth that we're seeing today. So sellers love to tout the in-place cap rate that's a rear view mirror, you know, trailing 90-day number and, you know, trailing 12 expenses and adjusted for taxes. Buyers love to kind of focus in on that year two or year three stabilized cap rate. The truth is kind of somewhere in between. I do think that we're in this market and multi in particular where you're constantly marking your rent roll to market and turning that rent roll over every year, it feels like the majority of, of buyers that we're working with are, are really not getting too hung up on what the cap rate looks like on a trailing basis. I would kind of speak in 50 basis point bands. I think most groups are trying to find a pathway to stabilizing somewhere between a three and a half to a four. That's obviously going to be a very subjective conversation, market to market and asset by asset. I've never been in an environment, I don't think any of us have, where we spend more time talking about year two and year three cap rates. It just tells you a little bit about you know, the growth environment that we're in and um, the level of, a, of underwriting aggression that, frankly, equity needs to deploy if they want to be successful in buying assets. Does that feel to you a little bit like world.com back in 2001, where everyone said you don't need to actually have earnings, you've got this 
revenues 10 years from now that are going to materialize and you're going to trade at 100 times revenue, so go public? You know, look, I uh, saw earlier that uh, crypto.com is going to pay $700 million to take the naming rights of the Staples Center. So I immediately, uh, I should have texted it to Appel, but I, I texted it to my crypto buddies and I said, if, if anything feels toppy, this feels toppy. I don't know what crypto.com's earnings are, but maybe we're back there in certain asset classes. We're not there in multi. I mean, the reality is we're not talking about a three, four lease sample set that you're trying to mark to market a 300 unit asset. At this point here in November 17th, we've been in, in an environment where we've had all of this strength from a leasing perspective that really kicked up and started in April and May. It's endured deeper into the normally slower seasonal period than we would normally see. I think we saw all that from the Q3 earnings calls from all the public REITs is that we're, they're maintaining that leasing strength deeper into the calendar. And so at this point, when you're looking at a multifamily asset that's already turned a third of their rent roll to these kind of new rents and you're marking the last two thirds of the property to market, that's not a big leap of faith. I mean, frankly, that's acknowledging a reality that exists today. And you're going to need to do that to be competitive. I would just add, I think assets that have inherent upside and you know meat on the bone still in them, those assets are, are typically purchased on a, on a price per foot basis, on a price per door basis in the multi-space. Assets that are stable, in our, and certainly in my strong opinion, are based on cash on cash return and cap rate on an exit and much less sensitive to the price per foot exit. And it's a great point, Aaron. I mean, when we're valuing and selling, 60% of what we sell basically falls into what we would call a value-add bucket. And there reaches this point of inflection where if the basis, acquisition plus rehab capital, is still below what it would cost to replicate that asset, frankly, the cap rate becomes an even more irrelevant metric at that point. Aren't you guys forgetting one thing? I mean, when we think about rent rolls and think about what the one or two year outlook is, do you think a blended seven, eight percent rent roll is sustainable? Because the only way to underwrite the deals that these buyers in the market are forced to do, even the buyers, you, you talk to industry executives, they have they're like, none of this makes sense. And therefore, when you think about penciling the returns that they need to achieve for their investors and the capital that they've raised, they have to make some pretty bullish assumptions year one and two, not to mention now everybody's developing because they can't make sense of buying in the existing transaction market because you get at least the development yields are more attractive versus the spread on current cap rates. So I think the question for you as you're in the transaction market is, are more people are interested in selling right now, according to our survey respondents, than they are interested in buying. But if they're going to do anything, they're going to develop. So isn't that risk that we're going to have a lot of development? Clearly, the velocity in the sales market, Ivy, would tell you that there are plenty of buyers. Because take you got to have a buyer for every seller. What we're seeing there. But one of the things that I would ask there, Ivy, to you just real quick is that is it not the fact that it's so difficult right now to develop? And to get a project underway and to get it not only entitled, but then to get labor and to get part, to get all the, the components, that that is slowing it down and therefore giving people quite a lot of conviction that rents can stay at this elevated level because you're not going to get the supply. Or are you seeing starts tick up to a degree that makes you say, no, 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 that's all great and good. There's a good line there, but actually there are more starts happening than you think. I mean, starts are up, you know, more than 30, 40% year over year for multifamily. So it's yeah, not- year over year, but that's back to 2020. Go back to 2009 to 20. Obviously, year over year, we would expect that to happen. What about back we to had a huge backlog even prior to 20, prior to COVID. But I think one thing, like, for example, in New York, I mentioned rents were up 
uh, new leases up 18%, which was slightly higher than the sort of two-year starting point of 19. But applications for new leases have tanked. So what, what happens is there's actually an affordability discussion that needs to be the topic of concern. The way I feel is that many of the operators and developers are like making the assumptions that you could just raise, like, like pricing has, is inelastic. Like you could just keep raising, raising, raising. And all these people that got great deals out of COVID that are getting rents reset at current market, a lot of them can't afford it. So we're seeing the impact of these rising rents starting to impact markets in terms of new applicants coming in. We're seeing that in liquidity and the rotation of capital. You know, the reality is the most expensive buildings in the Sun Belt has historically had the lowest rent to income ratios in the market. You know, these are buildings that had 24 months ago, $3,000 rents and average household incomes in these buildings were north of $200,000. You're talking about low to mid-teens rent to income ratios, which is quite different than where Manhattan was in February of 2020. So that's kind of the first point. I think when you see the liquidity and the, the active market participants in the Sun Belt today and otherwise historically more affordable markets, that's kind of an acknowledgement of, hey, not only am I keeping an eye on affordability, but there's also another just, you know, kind of regulatory risk, you know, conversation that we could probably schedule another webcast, mm-hmm. you know, to cover those talking points. I would just say to that is, and we've gotten some comments and some questions about affordability. The reality is for a lot of the country outside of the gateway markets, you can underwrite this mark to market that we're seeing right now, which is comfortable double digit growth. And then you can underwrite something in the outer years that, that isn't Pollyanna, but it's above inflationary, you know, historical inflationary growth. You know, I'm looking at, you know, assumptions in the three and a half to 5% range kind of post mark to market. And you look at that model, and that's a really aggressive revenue kegger over a five or seven year hold. But the reality is a lot of these assets, you're taking a rent to income ratio in these more uh, historically affordable markets that's going somewhere from the mid 20s to the mid to upper 30s. And so we've typically in the multifamily world kind of qualified on three times rent. We might be moving into a space where we're spending more of our wallet share on shelter and housing going forward. And maybe that ratio moves to one to two and a half. But these people aren't spending seventy five. The one thing that we're not accounting for in this discussion that I think that I think groups are underwriting to is wage growth because there's a huge shortage of workers and specifically high caliber workers in the country, but really all workers. There's been a huge subset of the sixty five and older age group that is not going back to work post COVID. Data shown that a lot of women are not going back to work post COVID, and there's just an overall shortage of, of labor, talent. We see it trying to hire support staff on our team, lack of candidates. And then you're going to see wage growth because of it. And companies are raising wages 10, 15, 20%. Where is that additional capital going to go? Well, part of it's going to go, you're going to be able to raise rents to follow wage growth. Aaron, to your earlier point about Amazon and the industrial space, look at the average hourly wage of a warehouse worker today versus three years ago. You know, it's up 25%. So Aaron, yesterday when you and I were together in New York, one of our larger clients who owns a ton of office in Manhattan surprisingly said to the two of us that their leasing velocity in Q3 was fantastic, which I looked at you and both of us were sort of like, wow, 
And if you look at the at some of our big competitors who have large leasing operations, we don't, uh, as you well know, they had a great Q3 as it relates to leases. That seems to be completely counterintuitive right now as it relates to people trying to get back to the office. But you're clearly financing office buildings in major MSAs that have a lot of vibrancy to them right now. What's the story that's happening there that we're not seeing? New products, well-located, just renovated, older assets that feel new are going to thrive going forward. And they'll see substantial rent growth, in our opinion. Older assets, tired buildings, poorly located buildings, they're going to really struggle. And I think there's, there's going to be a lack of liquidity for them or a lack of leasing for them. And it's going to be a tough slog and there's going to be substantial rent reductions and, and accommodations are going to have to be made to get tenants into those buildings. But, you know, we're seeing that now. Look, there hasn't been any real, there's been some good leases done in New York in the last couple of months. We're doing a, a building in Midtown South right now that's on a lease with, you know, top five tenant on the planet to take a couple hundred thousand feet in their building. You know, that tenant was moving from one building to another. They weren't expanding their footprint. Footprint expansion is going to be something that is going to be interesting to see where what happens. The client we were with yesterday has a trophy blue chip A-plus a caliber portfolio. So it's not surprising that they would see activity within their portfolio. They spent you know upwards of $700 million retrofitting a number of assets that they've had in A-plus locations. So for them to see velocity now as the market starts to come back, it's not surprising. Other landlords are not seeing that type of velocity. We still haven't seen any large, substantial new leases signed with tenants moving around or expanding. So we've heard that from clients we talked to and, and other colleagues that, that we've had in the past that that's going to happen. My expectation, assuming that we don't have any sort of COVID blow up here over the next three, four months, which I'm not expecting we're going to have in the U.S., despite what they talk about in the news and what's going on in Europe, I think that call it springtime next year, there's going to be a lot more activity in the office space. So Ivy, talk for a moment about work from home and its impact on, sing- on the single family market, because these changes... I mean, one of the things Aaron was talking about wage growth, there's also the savings that people who are working remotely have as it relates to not having to pay for the same gas, not having to pay for tolls, not having to pay for the sandwich at the, at the local deli that is staying in their bank accounts and therefore potentially being invested in housing. How have you seen work from home impact either single family, BFR or multi? Well, it's been a nice tailwind. So you have to think about the number of people that were working remotely prior to COVID. So if you look at the adult population between the ages of 20 and 64, roughly 6 to 7% were working from home. Whether you see that peaked out at 35%, their numbers are all over the place now. Is it 11% that are working from home? But there's hybrid. There's like New York City has 8% are working five days a week, you know, and then you'll say 54% are doing hybrid. So the numbers are all over the place. But I think that what we saw is the midst of COVID, we saw a rush to leave densely populated markets that really benefited the single family market. We saw the second home market just skyrocket and it's continued to be at very high levels, although starting to moderate. Just as an example in the state of Connecticut, where we had McMansions in Greenwich that were still underwater and still sitting there from the, the great financial crisis, pretty much the state of Connecticut saw a 74% increase in 2020 in second home purchases. So we saw, I feel like the chessboard is moving. And a lot of the suburban markets, like the tri-state area, as an example, benefited tremendously for the ability for people to have a co-primary home or a place to work from home permanently as their primary or a second home. But what we are also seeing is that 
a, a significant decline in the number of job relocations. So as you think about mobility, relocations from one city to the next, I mean, you moved to Denver from DC, that's just plummeted. So it actually is a headwind to housing turnover. And so the question is, how much should we pull forward? You know, I have young associates that are married but don't have children that were renting apartments in densely populated markets. They decided to go buy a home, buy a townhome, but they weren't ready. Normally the child, you know, child formation, family formation will drive it. So you have a lot of pull forward, especially for the people under 35. So I feel like the chessboard's moved and now the incremental mover, the question really is, is it going to be enough to sustain the momentum that we have? Or are we going to start to see that remote work can actually be a bit of a hindrance to turnover because again, the relocations just aren't happening. Chris, you've seen a lot in the built for rent and single family rental space trade at fantastic premiums to single family sales. And Ivy, I want you to comment on this, but I want to go to Chris first. Talk about what we're seeing there right now as it relates to some of these built for rent communities that were potentially built for sale and are now going to build for rent and the premium that people are paying for, if you will, cash flowing assets rather than a sale asset. I think we started this year and we had a lot of conversations with Ivy and her team about the fact that only 20 to 25% of the capital that's actually been kind of formed to access build for rent and SFR has actually been deployed. And so there's just this tidal wave and pressure of capital that's been circled to kind of access the space. But there's really been a, a huge scarcity of actionable opportunities to get that capital deployed. And so six months ago, we were having a conversation about where is this ultimately going to trade on stabilized yields? And is it on a pathway to parity with conventional product? I think that's a resounding yes at this point. I think that there's actually an argument that it should trade at yields that are inside of conventional product because of longer stays, lower retention ratios, some of the tech-centric management practices that can improve NOI margins. But I think it's probably about 60 or 90 days ago when we started seeing some of these completed projects priced, we had a concern about whether or not values as a build-for-rent community, once they started to knock on the door and maybe in some instances exceed homes we're trading for in the retail kind of for sale market, was that going to be a governor on pricing? And I think what we've seen is it's just two different calculators. And at the end of the day, the value of that cash flow and the durability of that cash flow in a lot of instances is worth more than what these uh, single family homes will be trading at to the retail buyer. So it's really kind of a faulty comparison, but it's one of those things I think is on the back of the mind of a lot of investment committees and it's a sanity check. But when I think about certain parts of the country, Core class A multifamily pricing at per square foot and per unit values comfortably in excess of existing condominium inventory. I think we've been seeing it. It's just in a little bit of a different light now. It's also a sign of the immature markets. I mean, some of this stuff is getting built on the outskirts of, of densely populated areas, not traditionally completely residential. So if you do have residential over there, it's very inexpensive and people are just going to buy cash flow on these assets. We've seen it before in some urban info locations where it's been an immature market where we've seen rental price per foot on rental assets trade at a higher level than the for sale value. And that typically you can play catch up at some point. I mean, we still see it in certain areas, but also these assets, you know, look, a lot of these tenants don't have the capital for a down payment to purchase an asset. So while interest rates are extremely inexpensive, they're not able to really benefit from it because they can't aggregate the capital to put a down payment down. 
to, sure. kind of, um, to go purchase an asset. The other thing about the built for rent product offering today is not an affordable price point. I mean, we're talking, you know, rents that start in the twos and go as high as the three thousand level per month. So I think what you have to think through is that if you're doing a built for rent strategy and it's very market specific, it might be a very attractive way, especially hedge on inflation, great cash flows. But if you're competing right up the street for a for sale product, brand new product, the box looks exactly the same and it's priced 30% higher in a per square foot basis, forget about the cash flows and what's attracted in the typical multi and or rental product that trades at a premium to for sale. The actual competitive product starts to give affordability constraints to the person who's going to be living in that shelter. What we're concerned about is that there's a lot of built for rent communities that are coming to market. They're going to be priced above the for sale competitive new product that's coming within a mile or two of where they're located. And I just wonder where all the bodies are going to come from because we have a a more contrarian view on the demographic outlook. So it really ultimately comes down to does this supply as it comes to market? Certainly it's a good thing if it doesn't ramp quickly, that mitigates the risk and it serves as a regulator. But if it's coming and if the floodgates, if you're right, Aaron, because you were saying supply chain bottlenecks might start to get alleviated and we get the supply coming and you've got a lot of shelter that now is available and it's not affordable shelter, then you really have some major risk, especially in the outer markets where a lot of that development's happening at very inflated prices. So we just have a concern that there's concentration risk in price point and location and marry that with the for sale development that's coming just as rapidly as the, well, maybe not even depending on the market, it's coming and ramping as well. So there's been a huge land grab by both for sale developers and for rent developers, and they're building in the same price price point in the same location. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think it's spot on. The only caveat is going to be is, are we going to see this ramp and and continual wage growth year after year? If you see that, everything works. If you don't see that, there's going to be real problems. That and you have bodies, you have physical bodies, where if you didn't have the pull forward, where the big shuffleboard is moving and people didn't make their move via during the pandemic, now the question becomes, if you bring, you're bringing supply at the aggregate supply that's in the process of being developed is the highest that it's been in multi-decade periods. Now we just have to say, okay, let's see if that pipeline gets delivered. Will we have enough true primary demand to fill up all this supply? whether it multi and single, but we think so, single is more problematic. So acknowledge for me though, Ivy, from the words of a macro economist, we cannot broad brush this conversation. There are population and migration and economic growth markets that are bursting at the seams that have seen multifamily rental rates grow at 25% over the course of the last 12 months. They've seen single family home price appreciation, 30 40% in some instances. The only way that we slow this down is we deliver more inventory. But actually, no, I disagree respectfully. And I love the hand movements. You're I, I'm, a, I'm a hand talker. No, I love it. Know. I love it. You know, and you're standing, I, I, moving. I, I love it when I'm outmatched in a debate by a macro economist, but, I, but it doesn't like- I'm really not a I'm macro. I'm a, I'm a housing economist. We'll okay, say that. But it, with, just think about the number of people that are in the market whether they're institutional investors or just non-primary buyers in the market. And that it's kind of like euphoric right now, free money. Why not buy a second home? Why not diversify from the stock market and be a private investor and buy either a condo and then rent it out as an Airbnb unit? You know, there's so much optimism and rates are free, rates are low. 
So rates can change the game dramatically. And I think when you look at a market, whether they're busting at the seams, whether it's the Texas markets today in Austin, or you go into Arizona, or you go into the mountain states in Utah and Idaho, everybody's busting at the seams. But what's the supply coming relative to the incremental true household growth? So you can tell me, oh, we don't have a problem in in Austin or in Texas because household growth is growing at a double digit rate, but the right. production coming is twice the level of household growth. So, so right now, clouding it is investors are very right. active that are fortunately not highly levered investors. So we don't have a potential GFC, but you just have to have the intersection. You can say it's a market by market discussion. Are you more bullish on one market than the next? Absolutely. It's oh, right. it's local, local, local. Everything's down to the, 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 the zip code, but just high level. What we have is a situation where we've got things busting at the scene, but the market's adjusting to that. The mark, the capital is following that. Do you think anybody's building in Cleveland, Ohio? No. Okay. You are. You're buying houses in Cleveland, Ohio. Exactly. You're buying houses and you're probably building it. You're speculating on that market. (laughs) But hang on a second, Ivy. I I just want to jump in here for two seconds. So one of the things you clearly have said, you've taken a contrarian position. And I just this morning was here in Miami at at a conference and somebody basically set up the question to me of, well, you've had Ivy Zellman on and you've had Peter Linneman on. Linneman says, back up the truck, buy every asset you can. Rates are going to stay low. Inflation is transitory. Go assets. And you've had Ivy Zellman on who's basically said that bad demographics, housing cannot avoid bad demographics, essentially. And that she's taken a very contrarian view. And everybody goes back to your fantastic research pre-GFC and saying that you called it early and that people who listened to you were out of the market and people who didn't listen to you paid a very, very high price. My question is that on demographics, we know that immigration, legal immigration, let me repeat that because last time you and I talked on this, a number of people thought that I was promoting illegal immigration. And I'm not talking about illegal immigration. I'm talking about legal (laughs) immigration. Legal immigration could change the scenario here in the States that Japan doesn't have the opportunity to do. And you and Dennis have talked about Japan and what's happened in Japan in their deflationary economy and their stagflation. What do we need to see as it relates to legal annual immigration to turn the demographic tables that you and Dennis have so clearly outlined? Well, prior to COVID, legal immigration was running, call it in the five to 600,000 annually. And currently we're running less than 200, but there's a cap per annum on what's allowed or the number of people that are allowed to enter the country legally. So we have to raise that cap substantially. So if we're going to sit here and think about the level of supply that we're currently building, the assumptions that we have that we're building to, we probably would have to double that, but I'd have to go do the math and get back to you, but pretty significant. And you know whether illegals could be assumingly part of the positive need for they're filling up all the shelter, which also can happen. A lot of those people can't get a mortgage approval or they're living multi people per household. I do think the legal immigration does solve the problem if the cap was raised substantially. And I would say at least a double. One more question on that. The immigration piece, Ivy, was one of your wild cards, if you will, that could change baseline assumptions. If you're not a subscriber to the Zellman Research Pieces PSA, one of the stats that floored me is when I graduated from Georgia Tech and I was 23 years old, I would want to live anywhere other than my parents' basement. And the percentage of the 20 to 39-year-old population that is living at home today and the exponential growth 
that we've seen in that from 2010. The, the, the stat that stuck with me, and you can refine it, and I might misstate it, but essentially, if we return back to the percentage of 20 to 39-year-olds that are living at home to the same percentage that we were in 2010, that's an additional 2.1 million households that are not in your baseline assumptions right now. We're texting on the side here, like, you know, Willie, I don't know how long you're going to let Jack Walker live at the house after he comes home from St. Lawrence, you know, on <laughs> Willie Walker's scholarship. <laughs> He's going to do better than his dad, Chris. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about that. How, how does that plus the immigration, like what are some of the things that could move baseline assumptions? First, I'm so excited that you're actually reading the research. So, and I need all the help I can get. I stats are, you're right on it. So the number of 20, 39, the number of people that are between the ages of 20 and 39 was surprisingly higher from 2010 to 2020. We thought that the big increase from 10 to 2000 to 2010 was just easily explained by the GFC. So you call it, we went from 16 and change percent of people living in 2000 to 19.7 in 2010. The real shocker, because we got bullish in 2012, because we thought that would unwind and that we would see young adults leaving home once they got employed. And that number over the decade, and we have annual number, so we can look at surveys that are done by the Census Bureau, the CPS, the ACS. The numbers continue to stay stubbornly high. It wasn't just like one year, they just unwound. And so by the end of this prior decade, we just finished, the number is 23.7. So we went from 19.7 And we thought that that would start to unwind. So you're right. If it was to turn around all of a sudden and those people were just leaving in droves, we get monthly data and the numbers are not turning around. We see the numbers that are, again, samples that are nowhere as big as the decennial survey, but we're not seeing it. But you're right. That could absolutely change our demographic outlook. And we ask ourselves, we're puzzled. Like, why? I mean, living in people, your parents' basement, maybe the stigma is not as negative as you think anymore, or you just have more people that can't afford to leave home. Maybe they don't have the ability to get the down payment, or they're just struggling and they're not ready to get married and start a family. There's a whole list of reasons. We think affordability is up there, especially after the surge in home prices, or just an acceptance of multi-generational living. They say boomers are the sandwich generation, you know, the sandwich generation, and they have their adult parents living with them and their adult children living with them. And that's how people live in Europe and they're all fine with it. So are we shifting to a multi-generational lifestyle here in the U.S.? The numbers would say we are. And I would say the one other thing that is worth thinking about, and it's hard to tell, but a society that is not as focused on ownership as it used to be, to the degree of not needing to own a car and using ride sharing not needing to own a vacation home, but just renting and and just renting where you live and not obviously from a retirement standpoint that has significant implications because the last generation created so much wealth in the value of their home. And that was the really great wealth creator for that last generation. Right now, it doesn't seem like this upcoming generation feels a need to own a piece of the rock. And that could have significant impact on the number of renters versus the number of owners. Hence all the bill for rent and multifamily development. Big time. Big time. And, and so, listen, the tenant base wants flexibility. So I know people that are 28, 29, 30 years old, they, they're going to Miami for four or five months. They're renting apartments down there during the winter. But they're but back Aaron, up here. They're going around. You're talking about the 1%. Okay. We're not talking about people you and I hang out with. We're talking about yeah, but maybe America wants to own a home because, you know, frankly, that's the only way they'll ever create long-term wealth in many cases. If anything, home ownership rates for the last five years have been rising. So the millennials have been in the market. They have been buying. I think that their challenge is affordability. And I think rent affordability is going to have the same problem. 
pricing is not inelastic. You have a ceiling. There is a level and wage inflation will wage inflation keep up. If in fact you're right and we have significant wage inflation, then we're not going to have an economy that's going to have deflation. It's not going to be transitory. You can't have it both ways. Inflation is it's not transitory. So if it's not transitory, the rates are going higher. There's not a single business owner listening to this webcast that doesn't feel like they're having pressure on the salaries that they need to pay their employees. What I'm saying, Chris, is we can't have it both ways. That The yield curve might invert because the 10-year tells the truth. The 10-year is the truth teller. That's not true because the 10-year is manipulated. The 10-year treasury is being purchased by our government. They are suppressing yields so that they can pay debt service on their debt. Aren't they going to taper? They can't taper. They can talk about tapering. <laughs> they can taper a touch. They actually try taper to taper a touch. That might be what we take from here. They're going to taper a touch. All right, I've only got four minutes left with the three of you, and I want to get final thoughts on this. One thing, by the way, Appel, yesterday you were talking about inflation being transitory. You told us yesterday. Hold that- on. I said it will come down from where it is today. It's 6% and change. It will drop down. Okay. It will probably settle in somewhere around four, four and a half would be my guess, right? Because of the currency debasement that's going on. And then but, it's you, still but you also made the comment about Asia and the fact that Asia is going to see they no inflation. They don't have inflation right now. They have very, very low inflation. They also don't have the types of debt problems that the U.S. has. They didn't increase. This cent. is Appel's book for Bitcoin. We're going to go all exactly. the way back. Real estate also hard assets. No question. So here's my last question to each of you. I'd asked you at the top, where would you put 100 million bucks and, and, and got varying answers on that. Where is their opportunity in the market today? So not making a $100 million bet on one thing, but as you see your smart clients moving into a strategy, if you will, and let's not name the clients or what have you, but as you sit there and say, we have a client who just did X, where are the smart clients moving to create value? Aaron, let me start with you on closing notes. There's a couple of different strategies that we've seen clients really press the super luxury end of the market and move into markets where there's you know maybe one product, but there's not enough to meet the demand. And they're going out and they're taking bets on you know moving the needle on pricing 25, 30, 40% on an asset class, thinking that there's enough liquidity you know in that marketplace for that particular product. And they're so far those bets have been right and they've had huge returns. So we've seen a lot of that. We've seen a lot of aggressive pushing the envelope price point plays at the high end of the market on really luxurious residential, really luxurious hospitality, 21st century, you know, high end industrial. And we've seen the tenants, the users, the people pay for it. I had to make bets in terms of real estate. And I spoke about this a little bit with you yesterday. Look, there's been so much capital that's moved into the Southeast and, and, you know, Southwest. There's been just so much liquidity. There's been a lot of people, the demographic shifts continue to move there because of taxation in, in the coastal areas and the blue states. That's a real factor. But I think those markets are certainly ready for. And if you go into those markets and you say, what's the best product that I can get? And then you go take a look at you know, some of the coastal markets and say, what's the best product I can get? There's a vast difference in construction quality and finish quality. And I think those markets are ready for the introduction of one or two of those products. And there hasn't been enough of it yet. And I think that's a huge opportunity. It's a difficult opportunity for to, to attract institutional equity into because it hasn't been done before. There's no comparables. It's very difficult for investment committees to approve. And then it's difficult to finance for the same reason. But I think that is a mega opportunity. It could be a windfall for anybody that wants to take that risk. 
Chris and Ivy, and I've got to ask you to be quick because I'm over time. So uh, real quick on finding opportunity, Chris. We spent a lot of this conversation talking about the revenue side of what's going on with all these assets. We don't spend a lot of time talking about expense ratios, operating margins. Those are going to be under a huge amount of pressure. And I think the groups that get out ahead of that and really rethink the way that we're operating a lot of this real estate, I think those are the groups that are going to win over the next five years, you know, using these really kind of tech forward management platforms, you know, maybe as, as, as single and multi merge into one with build for rent and SFR in the middle, taking some of those tech forward management practices and applying those to the conventional multifamily world and improving NOI margins. That's kind of the last frontier of the value add is the operational value add. That's where I'd be focused. I would say it's interesting just um, thinking sort of a combination of factors. You've got a need for automation. We have a significant amount of capital that's invested in prop tech and whether it's smart homes uh, or just improving the overall construction process, those things need to happen. But Lennar, for example, right now has gotten into 3D printing homes and there are other startups doing the same. We have an affordability crisis. If you told me that all the supply that I told you is coming was all priced below $1,000 per month for a consumer, that would be awesome, but that's not the case. So the affordable part, like you buying Alliant, which was genius, not just because you're my boss now and I pat you on the back. I do think that affordable housing on one end, but I like Aaron's point too, on luxury. You can't find a luxury two-bedroom apartment in Miami right now. So if that's a sliver of the market, that's where the wealth is. So our boomers are not going anywhere. They're going to live to 130, according to my friend, Dr. Royzen. So, you know, we need both the bookends. That's where the capital needs to go. And we need to use it with technology and automation to improve the overall returns for investors. So Dr. Royzen's coming on the Walker webcast in 2022, and I'm really excited to have him. I have to tell you to have, I got a lot of colleagues at WND and I love hanging out with all of them to have three colleagues, like the three of you with the minds you have and with the expertise that all three of you have at WND to be able to work with you every day is a great pleasure. And to have had an hour with all of you to talk about the markets has been a real treat for me. Thank you everyone for joining us today. If you obviously have any questions and know any of these three professionals, please reach out to them directly for any follow-up. And I'm taking next week off before the Thanksgiving holiday and uh, not doing a Walker webcast, but we will be back in early December with another one. Hope everyone enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you, Ivy. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for joining me. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you.